Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. The most egregious, oh, first of all, welcome to Second Hour of Mornings with Carmen. Uh, in some of the most egregiously biased reporting worthy of our attention, because it's being repeated across the media landscape today, I bring you the NCAA men's basketball Sweet 16. All right, so um, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, this is like the first time they've made the Sweet 16 in something like 50 years. They be, they beat out number two seeded Ohio State and my team, the number seven seeded Florida Gators, in the opening two rounds in order to advance to the Sweet 16. Now, in any other, were, were Oral Roberts any other school, uh, this would sound like a David and Goliath story that the media would love, but it's Oral Roberts. And so instead of being celebrated, they are being maligned. Why? Because Oral Roberts is an actual Christian school operating on actual Christian sexual standards, including, yes, the expectation that students live either in fidelity in marriage between one biological man and one biological woman or in chastity and singleness. And that would obviously prohibit uh, homosexual relationships of any kind. So a Christian college operating on Christian principles and holding Christian expectations of their student athletes is just too much for mainstream media to stomach. And so they are spewing all over the joy that should be the experience of these young student athletes from Oral Roberts University in their uh, taking their school for the first time in 50 years to the NCAA Sweet 16. So. You're getting headlines like this. I just reading. I, I could have picked any of them. I just picked this one because it popped up and it doesn't have a paywall. And it's called it's uh, from a website that's called The Insider or just Insider.com. Oral Roberts surprising NCAA tournament run is shedding light on the school's and scare quotes here homosexual activity ban and conversion therapy practices. So there's two things in there that are meant to scare you. Um, there is an acknowledgement here that uh, this is a Cinderella story, that the Golden Eagle success in the NCAA tournament um, is extraordinary. But instead of highlighting any athlete on the team or the success of them as a team or maybe their faithfulness and their faith and their diligence, whatever, instead of highlighting anything related to joy, this article and every single other article you're going to read on this highlights instead, quote, the school's troubling history. The school's, quote, controversial founder, the school's, quote, homophobic record. Um, I mean, on and on and on and on. This article, uh, in fact, um, says that their practices are, let me scroll down here because I was stunned a little bit to read this, um, uh, deadly, deadly. That what they are doing is 
um, is, you know, likened unto something that is going to kill people. Um, so I, I just it, it's it's bananas out there um, in terms of this subject. And so I'm going to stop right there because Peter Kapsner is waiting um, to join me. And although this is not a story that we had teed up to talk about today, he's a sports guy and a theology guy. So I feel like he's uh, already ready to talk about this. We're going to take a very brief break. Then Peter Kapsner is up next. is joining me, and he is completely 100% prepared to talk about the stories that I sent him, <laughs> which were about pet psychics and um, humans or animals, and it's time to get over it. But we have to lead off. I know. We, we will get there, Peter. I promise, because I know you have researched the, the yeah. pet psychic. Yeah, first of all, yeah. 100% prepared <laughs> might be a little aggressive, but sure, I, I can live with that. I know. You've been, you've been, you've been spending time with your cat. I have. I, I have. I, have I know you have. I've been okay, trying. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, okay, but we have to do this story first because here's here's what I'm trying to hold in balance. Yesterday, um, or a couple of days ago, we have we have all of the media all fawning over a a hundred and one year old nun who serves as a chaplain for a Catholic school that was in the NCAA tournament, Loyola Chicago, and we have them. I mean, you know, we have them publishing her. Her victory prayer, like the, the the prayer that she prayed prior to the team's victory. And, you know, I mean, line by line. And the next day, we have the same media condemning the fact that there's a Christian school operating on Christian principles in relationship to um, uh, human sexual behavior. And absolutely, I mean, condemning, I mean, con- the condemnatory stuff that's out there about Oral Roberts and Oral Roberts University is astonishing mm. to me. And so one day they're so do they not know that a Catholic nun is like celibate? Like, do they not like she's chased. She's following the same rules that the players from Oral Roberts University are following. Like, do they not get that? Oh, it, it, you use the the very theologically astute term bananas to describe the situation. <laughs> I cannot think of a better word than that, Carmen. I really can't. It it just you know, I guess one response is just being sad. It's just as sad because of all things, the NCAA tournament. It's you know it's not perfect and it's going to have some corruption in it. But but what I really appreciate over the years about basketball at that level, at the amateur level, is that again these students are getting scholarships, typically speaking, and that's not nothing. But a lot of them are simply playing for the love and the joy of the game. And, and you see that expressed in this tournament when inevitably every year and people fill out their brackets, right? They try to pick their winners. And every year brackets get absolutely exploded by some Cinderella team that has about 47 students taking on these massive universities and they somehow beat them in basketball. It, it is stunning every year how often it happens. And it's so fun. And, and you can just, you know, they mob each other on the court and they can't believe what they just did. And year after year, we, we, we celebrate that, that David and Goliath story that even our country loves so much. But then if you just do a quick scroll of the headlines, you literally just Google Oral Roberts here this morning. Some of the, the, the first two headlines are Oral Roberts, March Madness, runs, uh, the, the run spots school's homophobia, uh, homophobia history. Or who should you root for, root for in March Madness, not Oral Roberts. And you can just go through all of these 
uh, headlines, and it says the same thing in terms of we're not celebrating the the one small school. We're certainly not celebrating religious freedom, right? I mean, last I checked, our country was founded on religious freedom, and and if somebody wants to have a sexually chaste school, uh, in in terms of what we're advocating for. There doesn't seem like there's any harm in society with that, right? And 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 if we're not hating people and and we're we're trying to advocate for the beauty and wonder of the one flesh marriage, you would think that that could be something that would be celebrated in the midst of it, or at least upheld. But in this case, it is bananas. It it's just, it's hard to watch um, some of the discrimination happening against Christians in these settings. And in fairness, I mean Christians, as we know, over the last ten years. There have been so many public falls from grace from Christian leadership. And so Christians have sort of lost their moral credibility and authority to comment on really anything. And, and I do understand that part of it. But the flip side of it is equally as bananas as, as the, the reason why we're in this spot. Yes, we have no bananas. I don't know what song that comes from, but that's what is running through my head right now. <laughs> I, you okay. know, I, I bet Paul Perot can find that. We, we know. It is, yes, we have no bananas. I, I have a yes, suspicion we, we might no hear bananas. a clip, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Uh, we have bananas every day. Okay, so um, when, when I teed up this next uh, story for us, uh, humans are animals, let's get over it, I was reminded of... Um, uh, a chapter I wrote in a book. So I wrote a book, Peter. I don't know if you knew that, but I wrote a book <laughs> called Speak the Truth, How to Bring that. God Back into Every Conversation. It has a chapter um, entitled Truth Has Consequences and So Do Lies. And in that chapter, there's a section on of man and beast. Hmm. And so this um, this this conversation about whether or not humans are animals, which the New York Times says humans are animals, let's get over it, um, is an important ethics conversation, and Christians need to be prepared to engage in it. So we're going to talk about that after a very brief break. Dr. Peter Kapsner joins me in conversation here on Mornings with Carmen. We have no bananas. We have no bananas today. (laughs) Okay, so thank you. Um, Thank you, Paul. You're so good, man. Um, okay, I am I am reading an article in the New York Times. It is an opinion piece. It is by a person who is described as a professor of philosophy, which leads me to believe anybody can be that. Um, For sure, yes. Crispin Sart- Sartwell, who apparently teaches uh, at a school my kid will now n- definitely not be considering. Um, it is the Dickinson College of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So there you go. Okay, so we have Professor Sartwell uh, here is the here is the uh, headline. Humans are animals. Let's get over it. And then the subhead. It's astonishing how relentlessly Western philosophy has strained to prove we're not squirrels. Wow. Dr. Kapsner, go. <laughs> I mean, right? But uh, I, I guess, you know, when I read the article, actually, and I did read this one from, from start to finish, there, there was one thing I thought that was just fundamentally silly on one level. And there was another part that I thought was somewhat intriguing that is maybe worth looking into a little bit more. But the silliness, of course, is trying to be reductionistic or reduce human beings down into the animal kingdom. And, and all that happened is is we sort of uh, cell divided in certain ways kind of randomly through natural selection to then have consciousness but uh and, and through the process of evolution we're maybe a step in rationality above the squirrels but but let's not you know kid ourselves we really still are part of the animal kingdom and and we're sort of functionally equivalent to the animals and of course theologically speaking if you're a believer and, and have an awareness of genesis one 
you see that there is the fundamental difference between human beings and animals. I mean, we are in the Hebrew language when we're described as being image bearers. Uh, the Hebrew word is icon there. It's E-I-K-O-N is, is how we would phonetically spell it out. And, and it's literally to be God's representative or icon on earth and then to tend and to guard his ever unfolding garden in in all of its visible and invisible ways. So so we were sort of the guardians of the garden as it were and we're meant to steward that garden. We're not meant to have dominion in the sense that we use the the sort of the resources and the beauty and wonder of the garden however we see fit, but we have been called well above the animals uh, to guard and to tend to those animals in, in the ways that the Garden of Eden was meant to be. The Garden of Eden, is, it simply means that the Garden of Delight, uh, again, in the Hebrew language, and we're meant to just steward that delight in all of its visible and invisible ways. So I, whenever we start leaning into philosophy or sociology, and, and my background is sociology in terms of where I did my, my postgraduate, postgraduate work, some of the assumptions in those fields, really, if you just look at them for just a second, they're almost laughable. And But on the, on the flip side of it, there's some things that I think are, are kind of helpful, and this is what I appreciated about the article, was that in the, in the attempt to try to create an equality among human beings, the author went back into history a bit and saw that some of the ancient Greek philosophers began to evaluate human beings one to another. All the icons on earth or the stewards of, uh, of God began to evaluate based on how primitive they might be or how close to what they perceive to be animalistic behavior. And I, and I think, Carmen, we still live in the rippling impact of that, that not only from the times of Aristotle and Socrates and Greek philosophy that was saying, hey, some people are far more enlightened than others, and so they actually need to tend or to steward or to rule over other human beings because they're just less animalistic. And unless we think that was 2,000 years ago Greek philosophy, when Western anthropologists of France and of Germany and of the United Kingdom and the Americas in the late 1800s, when they decided to sort of get on their boats and, and travel to the, quote, exotic places on Earth. I mean, this is obviously pre-Internet, right, and, and pre-airplanes. And so these were seen as these exotic, primitive kinds of places. And, and they and we still live in this today, whether we know it or not. But the anthropologists said, OK, so here's the deal. What we observe when we go to places like Africa or South America or Asia is, is we observe people who are experiencing or interpreting their world through the lens of magic. And, and magic is the most primitive way to understand the world. And then as we've gotten less primitive, we started to interpret the world through religion. But now we, as France anthropologists and, and UK anthropologists and German anthropologists in America, we are, are rational beings. God is dead. We don't need to worry about religion anymore. We're the highest form of evolved beings. And so from that place, we will colonialize and we will teach them the better ways of, of science and reason and understanding the world. So they really categorize human beings in terms of less primitive to more primitive. The least primitive leaned into rationality and human reason. The most primitive were religion and magic, and we still deal with that today, and that's why Christians often are seen as kind of these backwards, archaic people, because dare we believe that there might be a realm of the invisible in which God dwells, the very creator of the universe, and we have a, a way to interact with God in those spaces. And so I would just maybe take issue with the idea that uh, Christians are the most primitive or most archaic, I would say we have the most opportunity to be the robust people of, of, of an intellectual life, of a spiritual life, of a relational life, as we are God's icons on this earth. But, but we do live in these sort of classistic kinds of systems where the elite and the smart have, have classified certain groups of people as more primitive. Okay. 
And today, the elite are the people with the big fancy degrees. Totally. Who are then classifying the people with who don't have fancy degrees as less fancy. Totally. And like they, I'm just saying, like the the their argument is so circular, it comes back to bite them on their own tail. Um, and I feel like I can say that because they think they're animals. Well, so, so the distinction between human beings and animals is not just articulated in scripture. Like it, that's significant, right? right I mean, of significant that that's that that's the reference point for the conversation. Um, but we have people teaching across the country. Peter Singer, notably, uh, maybe the most significant of this of this group of people. Um, that there is no distinction between human beings and animals. And in fact, animals who are um, at risk of uh, of being made extinct deserve greater protections than human beings, um, that people are actually the threat to animals um, and that people, the number of people ought to be reduced and certainly people who are um, not as fit as others. So this has real consequences. If you want to know why um, elitist thinkers in, in the culture today don't really care that the elderly are dying or that the preborn are exterminated prior to uh, the opportunity to live or why disabled people are now being euthanized in, in our northern neighbor Canada um, based on death with, death with dignity, dignity laws to which they cannot reasonably understand. I mean, on and on. This is why. This is, this why, is why. Because they believe that human beings are nothing more than animals and that animals in many cases are superior to human beings. Yeah. Like, I, I, that's what's going on. And people you, need you to it. understand that. Yeah. No, Carmen, you 100 percent nailed it. And, and as people are positing this way of life moving forward, I think the other thing that we can say, and, and this is coming from somebody who's teaching and has taught in universities since about 2002, and I love university life. I love the process with the students. I love everything about what I do. But we also have to step back and recognize that the way you advance within university life is um, it, it can get a little dodgy and it can get a little dicey at times because when I got my PhD, it was sort of celebrated as I am now contributing new knowledge to the world that didn't exist prior to that. And and, and to the extent that you're able to then um, get tenure and to advance in your career and publish papers at these fancy symposiums and all these sorts of things and get increasingly fancy letters, you have to continue to try to contribute or carve out space for new knowledge in the world. The, the last thing you can do is simply defend Christianity in so many of these universities because it's old, boring knowledge. That's the archaic knowledge. New knowledge is what we're after. That's how you actually end up feeding your family, Carmen. It's how you have job security is, uh, is getting your name out there in those ways. And I've sat as I've written essays and done my work and thought, you know, I could twist the actual evidence ever so slightly that it would now be new knowledge in the world. And I probably would benefit from that personally. Now, I didn't do that because of the process of academic virtue and integrity, but it's happening all over the place. So that the point of all of that is we have to be very careful who we listen to as supposed or alleged experts. Just because you have fancy letters after your name, that does not mean that there's credibility. In fact, quite often, and dare I say most often, the people of the fancy letters in our society these days are using it as leverage and as power over people. All right, I'm going to use a big word, and then you and I have to go to a break. Um, uh, so I want people to be watching for the, the way that animals are referred to as if they're human. So 
anthropomorphication, right? So that like anthropomorphized. I know. <laughs> I love I know. that word. Scrabble. I play Scrabble every night. Okay. You would win Scrabble so, if you could get that Scrabble one on I the do. table. Anthropomorph- so, so when animals are anthropomorphized, when they are made to be human-like, when we give them na- – when we have contests to name them, when we refer to them by name or by human pronouns um, as he or she versus it – Um, An animal isn't it. An animal is, I mean, yes, they have a gender, um, but they are not male or female. Uh, I mean, they're not male or female in the same way that we are endowed as image bearers of the living God. And so just the, just, you know, the, the, the whole conversation about whether or not your dog is going to heaven is a conversation at the center of this. Humans are animals. Let's get over it is the headline in the New York Times. Genesis 1 headline, humans are not animals and it's time to get on with it. Indeed. Well said. All right. Hey, we got to leave it right there. You are um, so much fun to talk with. I am so sorry we did not get to the pet psychic conversation. (laughs) You and me both, Carmen. That one is so good. All right. I don't know. More with Peter Kapsner, but it won't be until next week. All right. Next up, uh, Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down. We'll be right back. All right, as we approach uh, Holy Week, I guess I wonder what you're reading. Um, And I want to invite you into a brand new Charles Martin nonfiction book, They Turned the World Upside Down. So if you've ever, like, spent some time thinking about what was it like to walk with Jesus, um, maybe you have watched the first Uh, season of The Chosen. That has really stimulated and provoked conversations in our family about what it was like for those first disciples to, um, you know, actually like get out of their fishing boat um, and leave their nets and their dad behind or what it was like for Peter in his own home um, where his mother-in-law was, you know, from one story we know, ill and his, obviously he's married and what is it like to literally walk away from your tax booth if you're Matthew. I mean, on and on and on. Like, what what was it actually like for them to put feet to their faith, get up from what they were doing in, in the ordinary warp and woof of life, and follow Jesus? Not just in sort of an intellectual ascent. Yeah, I believe that. But actually a, a, a faith enacted. So that's the conversation that Charles Martin tills in They Turned the World Upside Down, and he joins me next to talk about it. This is Max Locato. Maybe your past isn't much to brag about. So do you rise above the past and make a difference, or do you remain controlled by the past and make excuses? Many choose the latter. Lean closely, and you will hear them say, If only. If only I'd been born somewhere else. If only I'd been treated fairly. If only. The white flag of the heart. Maybe you have every right to use those words. For you to find an ancestor worth imitating, you'd have to flip way back in your family album. If that's the case, let me show you where to turn. Put down the scrapbook and pick up your Bible. Go to John's Gospel and read Jesus' words. Human life comes from human parents, but spiritual life comes from the Spirit. John 3, 6. God is willing to give you what your family did not. This is Max Locato. Joining 
Joining me now, Charles Martin, most recently author of They Turned the World Upside Down. You can find all his stuff at charlesmartinbooks.com, charlesmartinbooks.com. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me back. All right, so I know you don't you you don't tell people what your favorite um, novel is, but let me just say the Waterkeeper <laughs> continues to uh, pop to my mind when I read and process headlines about human trafficking today. Um, and and any time that I begin to think about the Waterkeeper, I can smell um, the 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 pluff mud um, from the, the the coast of South Carolina. So I'm just letting you know, like right that is that is rich. There's some there's some richness if you can make me smell something when I read a headline. It's a tender story to me, and um, uh, I was you know it's actually part of a trilogy. It's when I set out to write it, I asked my my publisher and editor. I said, hey, I think these characters might I might could carry them into like two and three books. What are you thinking? Amanda said, sure, great, let's try it. So. I've actually written part two. It comes out this June, and uh, I'm I'm sitting at my desk this morning working on part three. So pray for me. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> you know what? Let's let's just do that. Can we just start there? I I like to mm. stop and pray when people ask because otherwise, if I commit to it and then later I forget, I'm stand condemned. So can we just do that right now? I would love that. Yes, F- Father. We just want to bear up our brother Charles before you right now. You are the inspiration in his heart and mind. You have given him um, these stories to tell, um, to bring the light of love and truth to bear in the realities of real life. And so we would ask that you would um, be the Spirit operating in his heart and mind. That you would give him the words to put on the page in order that the truths you desire to bring forth um, into into people's imaginations and conversations uh, would would happen uh, through the through this trilogy in Jesus name amen 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 thank you yeah absolutely okay so um they turned the world upside down is the book we're talking about today it's your second nonfiction book it's a follow-up to what if it's true so you're a really accomplished fiction writer and your stuff is awesome so why write nonfiction and why write this nonfiction a couple of books ago i was sitting in my desk working i was in the middle of a novel and when i do that there's usually two, two parts of me at work there's the creative side where i'm working writing stories and then there's the other side of me or the other half of my brain or other, my other half of my heart or something and i'm talking with the lord and I just had this thing kind of bubble up, and uh, it was like, Lord, I love what I do. I'm thankful that you let me tell stories. I, please don't hear this as complaining, but if I could just press pause on my fiction for about six months, I would love to tell the story of you and me, or at least what you've revealed to me about yourself through your word. So what if it's true became sort of part one of that. And then because that, that story really only carries us up, up to and through the crucifixion and into the empty tomb and the resurrection, I then asked my publisher, I said, hey, I, you know, the story doesn't end there. Can I tell part two? And she said, sure, great. So then it just became a question of really I was thinking, I'm, I'm thinking one day about the Jesus walking up the Mount of Olives with his followers, and they think they're going back to a place they've been a lot of times. Just one more day. Actually, they're, they're probably starting to think that Jesus can take on Rome because he's defeated death. That's probably what's going on in their minds. And I think they walk up this mount. Jesus is a hugger. I don't think he was indifferent. I don't think he stood over there and said, you may not approach me. I think he was arms around his brothers. I think he was a jungle gym for the kids. I, mean, I think they're just walking up for a family picnic. Well, but the problem is when he gets there, he hops in the father's chariot. 
the last they see is like something like Haley's Comet. And then there's, there's two angels saying, hey, what are you doing standing here? He's going to return the same way he left. And I think every single one of those people, who, both men and women, who loved him with all that they knew how to love, walked down that mount with one singular question, which was, what on earth do I do now? So mm-hmm. the book came out of that question. So it's excellent. They turned the world upside down. Um, it provides a view into um, faith enacted, not just like intellectual Christian confessionalism, uh, you know, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but but the the steps that follow. Um, talk about putting literal feet to faith. One of the things that Jesus does when he walks into the room, and I, they, you know, they're sitting in the upper room, wherever that was in Jerusalem, and they're they're afraid of Rome. The doors are locked, and they're probably thinking they're next on the crucifixion, you know, roll count. And Jesus walks through the wall door, whatever, and he appears. And the thing that described them was unbelief. And as we walk through his first couple encounters with them. We realize that Jesus has got to walk them out of that unbelief into belief. And there's a difference between believing in Jesus as Messiah and believing that he is the Messiah. Even the demons believe that he is the Messiah. They've just chosen the wrong king and the wrong kingdom, and they've lost their chance. As for you and I, we have the decision to make when confronted by the king, are you going to believe in me as, this, as Messiah? Or just sit on the sideline and believe that I am. The way I talk about it in the book is this way. It's as if you and I are standing next to the Grand Canyon. There's a bridge across, single file line of people. And they are the the first one in line, straps that thing around his or her ankles, stands up on the railing, grabs their GoPro, and takes a swan dive off the railing for the bungee jump that stretches three or 4,000 feet, snaps them back, they giggle. It's It's one thing for you and I to sit on the side of the canyon and say, I believe that will hold me if I jump. It's very different to walk out on the bridge, strap it around my ankles and take a Peter Pan off the side. The disciples believed in, they entrusted in him as savior. They gave him, they laid down their lives for their love of him, their obedience to him, what he said. It all died, save John, and they tried to kill him. And when they couldn't, they put him on an island. So I, early in the book, the first thing I, I felt like needed dealing with was their unbelief, which led me into some real honest questions about my own. And, and when I look at his word and what he said and what he commands me, do I really believe it? Will I sit on the sideline or will I step into this thing and try and do what he commands me? Because he says, if you love me, do what I command you. Amen. All right. We're talking with author Charles Martin. Um, we're talking about his brand new book, They Turned the World Upside Down. It's definitely inspiring and encouraging to those who want to be all in, Disciples of Jesus Today. The title is drawn from Acts chapter 17, verse 6, They Turned the World Upside Down. When we come back from a very brief break, we're going to ask Charles to illuminate that or expound on that a little bit. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Charles Martin, you can find him and his books at charlesmartinbooks.com. We're talking today uh, about his latest nonfiction book, They Turned the World Upside Down, as we breathlessly await the second fiction book. What's the, what's the title of the next book that comes out in June? It's called The Letter Keeper. 
The Letter Keeper. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. Okay, I, I hope I'm on the list. I can't wait. Okay, so um, <laughs> as we breathlessly await The Letter Keeper, we're talking about, um, th- this is really, this is a great book, and this is a great book for right now as we enter into um, and approach Holy Week. The The title is drawn from Acts chapter 17, They Turned the World Upside Down. Um, help people understand what uh, what you're talking about in using that as the title. Following Acts to Pentecost, um, all the believers have Jesus' commands and they have his authority, and now they have his spirit, which has empowered them. So they walk out of Jerusalem, and this little movement known as the Way spreads by word of mouth. Rome is afraid of it because signs and wonders are following those who believe. And by the time we get to Acts 16 or 17, Paul and Silas walk into Thessalonica, which is a thousand miles northwest of Jerusalem. You either have to sail an ocean or walk way around your elbow to get to your thumb to get there. And by the time they do, the word of this movement and the power that it wields has 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 preceded them. So that when they get there, the city rulers and officials are afraid. And they're afraid primarily because the power is greater than that they see in Rome, and Rome doesn't like competition. So they drag the people who are taking care of Paul and Silas out of their homes, a man named Jason and his friends, and they say, these are they who are turning the world upside down. Another translation says, these are they who have upended the inhabited earth. I like the second better. But it's a derogatory term. It's not a compliment. It's describing them as... These are people causing all of these other folks around here to question what you've told them to believe. So to me, it's just a beautiful description of the obedience of the disciples, the, their belief in who Jesus was and what he said to do, and the fact that they walked in the power. When Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and I did not come to you with persuasive words, but in power indeed. These people are seeing that, and they can't deny it. So it's a description of the effect or the fruit of what they had done. But mind you, it wasn't the goal. The goal was never to turn the world upside down. The goal was obedience to the one that they loved because they saw a dead man live and rise again, and they loved him enough to lay down their lives for him. I I can't read— Acts 16, well, really, you can't, you can't really read Acts without understanding, you know, that the disciples, like, they were different, and people perceived them to be different because they had been with Jesus. And so the right. verse from Acts chapter 4, um, verse 13, you know, people, people see the boldness and what's described as, like, unfettered eloquence of Peter and John, and right. they— they recognize these guys are unlearned. They're not trained. They don't have, you know, papers, big hats, fancy, fancy. Uh, that's just not who they are. Um, and they recognize, and here's the line for me, they had been with Jesus. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't really care, Charles, like what else other people get about me. If they don't get that I've been with Jesus, then I have, I have not borne sufficient witness to who he is in my life. Correct. Me too. Me too. Yeah. One of the beauties I love about the way Jesus returns is not everybody is right with him when he returns. Foremost is Peter. Peter's one of his best friends. Peter affirms Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. He says, you are the Christ. And then just prior to the crucifixion, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. Well, sure enough, we know that he does three times. The last time of which 
is around a charcoal fire talking to a slave girl. And I think from that moment, Peter's heart is rent down the middle. I think he's riddled with shame. He, Jesus is resurrected, but Peter can't even look him in the eyes. So what does he do? He returns to his former life. Notice he's no longer following Jesus. And he's in a boat fishing on the northwest side of the Gal- of Sea of Galilee. And all his buddies are with him because they don't know what else to do either because their leader doesn't have his head straight. And so they see Jesus on the shore. They say, it's the Lord. And it's interesting what Peter does not do. He does not say, Lord, tell me to come to you. He doesn't feel worthy, and he's riddled with shame. He also puts on his cloak. Now, what person dresses up when they're about to jump in the water? It tells you a lot about his heart. He swims ashore. Jesus meets him. I've heard this taught a lot of ways, sort of like a finger pointing, do you love me? Do you love me? I don't think that's the way it was. I think Jesus put his arm around him, pressed his forehead to Peter's and said, Peter, do you love me? And feed my sheep. And he says it three times. He allows Peter, maybe the greatest do-over in the history of do-overs, to make the right confession, to start over. And then he says the thing that maybe heals Peter's heart the most, which is really simple. Follow me. And that puts Peter back in the lineup. It tells him you're worthy to follow me. Your past sins don't define you. The thing I love about this is that Jesus takes the shame off of Peter, which Jesus paid for on the cross. He separates it from his heart. He says that doesn't define you. Your enemy doesn't get to tell you who you are. I'm, I'm telling you who you are. You're my son and you're my brother, and I'm taking you to the Father. Now we've got stuff we need to do. Let's get on with it. And the beautiful thing we see there is the resurrection in Peter's own heart, so to speak, and who he becomes. And he becomes the, the, the man we all want him to be in Acts 2 when he stands on the southern steps of the temple and gives maybe the second best sermon in the history of sermons next to the one on the mount. But the thing I love about that is that Jesus, in mercy-filled, tender, loving fashion, deals with Peter's shame from the get-go. And I believe he does that with every single one of us. And he doesn't do it with condemnation. He does it with, I love you. Just follow me. Um, I so appreciate your um, your willingness to share so deeply out of your own faith, um, your own scripture study. The book is excellent. Uh, great contribution to the conversation that we need to be having in the world about how we live as disciples today. The book is They Turned the World Upside Down. It is a follow-up to What If It's True, so I would recommend both of them to you uh, in your Holy Week reading. You can find them and everything else that Charles Martin has written at charlesmartinbooks.com. Thank you so much, my brother, for joining us today and sharing this, and blessings on your Holy Week. Thanks again. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, uh, a couple of things here at the end of the hour. Um, First, where in the word are you today? I know I always ask at the beginning of the hour, but I had so much to say at the beginning of the hour that I forgot to ask you. So I am in Mark chapter 6. I encourage you to join us. We are reading through the Gospel of Mark, the Mark reading plan. You can find it at MyFaithRadio.com. It's never too late to join us um, in reading through the Gospel of Mark in the lead up to Easter. Um, Also, let's see, in other news... Um, I'm getting my first COVID shot today. I know. I didn't know I was like, like, I don't know. My number is up. I didn't have any idea. Anyway, uh, I'm going to do that. I'll let you know uh, tomorrow how that goes. There you have it. That's what I know. What are you doing today? 
Where in the Word Are You Today? Um, what intentional acts of kindness might you engage in today? This is like a bolo. Be on the lookout for opportunities to extend the grace of God to someone else, to show mercy, to um, extend compassion, to walk along someone who is suffering. Um, you know, we have had some conversations in these two hours today that are headline driven, but hopefully they are also heartline driven. So let your heart be driven today, um, not only to the cross, but unto, uh, likened unto the one who went to the cross and walk with somebody else in their suffering uh, today. That might be the act of kindness um, most effective uh, in the world in which we live, that, the, that Jesus is still trying to turn upside down through the witness of his people. So there you go. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.